Hey, g'day there, fellow humans. Mark Labusk here, the Simply Practically Human podcast. And um, my guest today is Tanya Heaney-Voot, who is an expert in creating mentally healthy workplaces and also the author of a book called Transforming Norm, Leading the Change to a Mentally Healthy Workplace. And uh, Tanya's going to share her backstory and a whole lot of simple and practical tips on how to get to a place where we always should be is feeling safe in the workplace. We'll catch you at the end. Life can get pretty complicated. In the Simply Practically Human podcast, Mark Labusque talks to incredible humans to see the way forward more clearly through the complexity in the world and in our heads. Let's get ready to thrive. Hey, I'm delighted to be joined today by author, mental health workplace expert, and change facilitator, Tanya Heaney-Voot. Tanya, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. We're going to talk today about mentally healthy workplaces and and your book that you've just put out, which uh, I've only flicked through. I'm going to say that, but there's some good stuff in there. Thank you. But before we go there, I'm going to wind the clock back to Terrelgan, I reckon it is, in, uh, in country Victoria, Australia, just out of Melbourne where we met for the first time and we always start, or I always start, with first impressions of each other and you get to open the batting. So your first impressions of me. <laughs> I was in awe, of course, because I had just started my business, Mark, if you remember, and I was really in awe. There were a couple of things I was in awe of. One, when you told me your daily rate, sorry if we want this out, <laughs> you might want to edit that. And I just thought, oh, my God, that's just so far away. The other thing I've always been in awe of is this fabulous game you play, this Judge Mark game that you do at the start of your sessions. And, you know, I absolutely love that. I think I sat in on a session you did for Ari Gippsland. The way you pulled that off is so great. It just cuts through everybody's junk theories of superiority straight away. It's such a leveller. And if anyone says they don't judge the facilitator, they're full of tish. And I just love it so much. And I honestly wish I had the kahunas to pull it off myself. Well, you can, <laughs> but I you love can it. do it. It's easy to do. you just got to come up with five really <laughs> wacky out there things like, yeah. you know, favourite ice creams, Dylan Guns and Roses, whatever else, the things yes. that I say. And it is a great leveller. First impressions Loved were it. a guy that overcharges people. I like that. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was just, no. Uh, and you were very tall, and so for me it was just this this big sense of grandeur. It's like, wow, Mark's a really important person. But, you know, you have just been, from the time we started chatting, you know, just what everybody loves about you I think is the humanness and you're just so grounded. And, yeah, we've kept in touch and you've been such a great, you know, you're such a great champion of people and I, I really respected that and continue to respect that. Well, well, you can if you, we can turn this into a podcast about me if you want. But, yeah, uh, how so, good so, is so my, my first impressions of you, you reminded me very much of me when I first went out to start. Like you had a – my impression was you had an amazing idea, mm. but you were – I've written some words down here. It was like there was a, there was a lot of doubt. Mm. It was a bit of I'm a bit lost and I'm not quite sure what's next. And you know what? That's a first impression, and it wasn't a bad impression for me. It was like, I reckon that's exactly where you need to be right now, even though it'll feel like shit. So this is for anyone who might be deciding to go out and start up their own business, and they're like, oh, look at look at him and look at he's doing and all this sort yep. of stuff. But um, I walked away from that going, she'll be fine. She'll brain it because there's something in her that she wants to help other humans to be better, whatever better means in whatever field you found it in. But at the same time, there's a bit of, 
what I call on the edge of comfortably uncomfortable, even into uncomfortably uncomfortable of I'm a little bit distressed here. So that was my first impression, but walked out of there going, you know what, it's a bit like this is a flippant remark. I said to myself, yeah, she'll be right. She'll be fine. <laughs> and you know what, you have been. I have been. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think it's just part, oh, God, I hate this, you know, the journey word, but I think it is just part of it, isn't it? Yep. it it's just part of it, and you, you've just got to go through it. You've got to go through all of that, yeah, that absolute self-doubt and, you know, the far out, you know, what have I done? I've just thrown myself off a ledge, <laughs> you know, all of that stuff, but that's what makes or breaks you. Well, it does, and if, you know, if if you're not prepared to do that, for anyone listening who's considering at the moment the great realisation turning into the great resignation turning into their own business, if you're not prepared to put up with a bit of um, discomfort, you're, you're mm. picking the wrong field. Stay so, there. Stay yep. there. So um, I don't like the J word either, so I'm not going to say the J word, but we're going to go mm. back in time because one of the things I really love is that my guests are great sharers of their backstory and it helps me and I think others to go, well, now I get it. I get more about Tanya. So you go back as far as you want, Tanya. What's the backstory? Mm, I think there's a couple of backstories. And I think one has only really become more apparent from a comment made in a workshop last week, actually. So there's two, I suppose, the backstory to Tanya and the work she does and the love for humanity and mentally healthy workplaces and probably, you know, our connection over human leaders Really, I remember in, I don't know, maybe year nine it was, we had the start of school and we had this assembly outside on the grass and there was, you know, there was a new kid. It's a new kid on the block. And I was always a very good pretend cool person, with it, but a secret nerd, Mark, right? <laughs> I used to hang with the cool kids, but I was absolutely a nerd at heart. And I remember seeing this girl who was new to class and, you know, I've just got such a soft heart and I'm like, I'm going to have to go and talk to this person. She's sitting on her own. I'm going to have to go and connect and um, say hello to this person, which I did. And that that person subsequently went on to be bridesmaid, first wedding. We won't have to go into that backstory. And, you know, a couple of years ago, I've got photos of us having a very fun time at a big milestone birthday event. So this person has stayed in my life and I'm so proud of that moment. But why I'm raising that, last week in a workshop I was doing around mentally healthy workplaces and one of the things we talk about is psychological safety and Timothy Clark's model around psychological safety, the first stage is inclusion. So how do we build inclusion? And I talk about one of the simple ways to do that is, is that everybody in the workplace can take simple steps to just go and introduce them to somebody new, you know, show that little bit of vulnerability. And this person said when he was in the military, he was told that if the first person that come to speak to you when you start in a new place, you don't talk to them because they are the social outcasts, he said, and the only reason they're coming to talk to you is because no one else has befriended them. And I said, I'm just realising that I've been a social outcast for my entire life and actually, you know what, I'm okay to be that mm. social outcast. So if I connect all the threads, the threads are around, for me, they're around inclusion, right? It's just yep. around everybody deserves to be seen, deserves to belong, deserves to be spoken to and treated to really nicely. And so, you know, I think there's a seed there for me. The more recent backstory is probably like a lot of people. I, you know, I've worked in workplaces that were probably not that conducive to good mental health and certainly yeah. weren't environments that enabled everyone to thrive. And, you know, at the time I thought it was a failing with me without realising that the systems, the environment was actually really toxic and, you know, fear-based leadership and, yeah, it wasn't going to enable anyone 
to thrive. And that great word resilience, which is you know another one I hate, there's a lot of great people out there being broken and feeling like, oh, I just need to be more resilient to put up with really shitty leadership and unsafe work practices. But we need to do more. Yeah. You know, the, the case for change is really strong. So where, thank you. I like the two stories, particularly mm. this idea of the social outcast. Like seriously, yeah. uh, imagine that. You're right there with me, Mark. I reckon I might be. Um, <laughs> year nine, Tanya, where was year nine? Whereabouts were you in year nine? Where, where were you living? Oh, God. Do I have to even admit it? I, I was at Packy High, Packenham High School, Packy High. Wow, we. Yeah. <laughs> Hello to those listeners in Packenham, Victoria, and um, we, we do like your town. Any other memories of school, anything a bit further on that, that sort of shaped you up? There was that. I think that's a great one you said. Is there anything else that you can think of? not even just at school, but maybe after school and in your early years in the workplace? Oh, my gosh, yeah. Look, you're taking me down memory lane. My very first job, because I was pretty keen to get out of school because I was a bit sick of the the nonsense. So I've done my life a little bit arsed about. I've got my uni degree, my master's late in life. I, I left school at the end of year 11 with really great marks, but I was just so sick of I don't know, the institution, I think, yep. that was school. Anyway, my very first job, I was a gun typist, still am, right? But, I mean, I learnt on the good old typewriters, you know, the RSI drivers. Yeah. <laughs> and um, my very first job was, I think it was called a key punch operator in Melbourne. And I went in and it was the most horrendous work environment. You literally sat down and you punched keys for the entire day. Nobody spoke to you. It was horrendous. And I was a little country bumpkin going into the big city, you know, and I – I think I might have lasted four days. And on my fourth day, I went out at morning tea, caught the train home and never went back. <laughs> <laughs> so they're probably still wondering where I am. Um, you know, there was a letter and I was just like, no, I'm just not going back there. <laughs> anyway, I found myself a career in real estate. And again, you know, early and just had really toxic leaders. You know, you've all got to treat the young person like shit. I don't know what it is with people that, you know, I don't know. So maybe, you know, maybe that whole early work life has shaped, you know, it all has led to where I am, I suppose. You know, you don't have to be a shitty lady. You don't have to treat the young people really poorly to get respect or, you know, it's just that fear-based leadership nonsense. So why do you think then that that model of fear-based management or leadership has been given such a, a free run and a free reign? Because it has for mm. decades and decades. Why, why has that been the, the go-to management style, do you think? I don't know, uh, but I think we haven't challenged it. Yep. People haven't been courageous enough to say, you know, there's another way. And I think still, and I'll, you know, I'll talk about this, and I talk about this in the book, there's still a lot of stigma when we talk around mentally healthy workplaces. People think we're talking about environments where we, you know, shove our feet up on a desk, we've got our fluffy slippers on, we're sipping lattes, and we don't have to do any work. We can choose, you know what, no, don't feel like doing any work, Gustavo. You know, we don't want to be stretched. We, there's no stress or accountability or responsibility. And it's such nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. But I think, you know, people tend to see things very black or white. So we're either in that fear-based, cracking the whip, everybody's highly productive versus we're in this soft and fluffy environment where it's all we're all skipping through the halls singing Kumbaya. But you know, there's some great middle ground yep. and that's where we need to be because I don't want to be in that environment. I'm about productivity. You know, I work hard and I, I, as a leader, I expected others to work hard around me too, but I didn't break them in the process. You know, so there is that, again, you know, I know I'm talking to the right person here when we talk about humanity and leadership. There's such a middle ground, but 
we we tend to go one or the other, don't we? I also think we overcorrect as human beings. Yeah, we do. The middle ground is the hard place to do the work. So, you know, it's mm. easier to take one side or the other. I know, you know, I've been on both sides. I've played the the shit manager, the bad mark and the good mark inside of it. And, mm. and I don't think either of them, I certainly think the second one being being better mark served me, I'm going to say weller, it's not even a word, but served me well. <laughs> but there's something in between where I think where the, where the real work happens, which is where I think I'm flicking through your book, that it's not like you need to be here or you need to be here. It's like you need to understand that People come from different places, and there's and there's actually mm. a what I think is a really cool thing you've got in there. This sort of stage, these three stages of mm. creating a mentally healthy workplace. But before we get into that, tell me if there is a definition for it. What is a mentally healthy workplace, or what does it look like? Yeah, well, there are some very formal definitions. The one that's a bit more philosophical that I like to talk about is just it being an environment where the organisation and the chiefs of the organisation have recognised the role work plays in positively and negatively impacting on individual mental wellbeing. And they've taken steps to focus on building those things that have a positive impact and mitigating those things that have a negative impact. I like it. And you know what? That that almost sounds too simple. That's why you're on the Simply Practically Human podcast. So, <laughs> so talk about these three stages because I think what I what I'm what my sense of flicking through there ain't there's no silver bullet in there for people. It's like that's the thing. Tanya's given it to me on page 27. I don't need to yeah, read on. I flick a switch and we're good. Yeah, yeah, go through these three stages for us if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. So, I mean, in the book, I talk about the maturity model, and really the need to actually address barriers that that stop progress, stop you maturing in this space because it, it one of the barriers is that it isn't a quick win or a quick fix activity. It's very much transformational. And we are in such a, a world of instant gratification that anything that's going to take a bit of time, we instantly sort of shy away from, right? But the, we can't keep shying away from this. The, the data is very, very clear that uh, the way we've always done things is no longer working for us. We have escalating rates of mental injury in the workplace, which resulted from unmanaged work-related stress. And there's lots of really confusing, you know, because to earn our money, of course, we've got to talk about all these really confusing bits of terminology that just overwhelm people instead of just keeping it simple and saying, hey, let's address those things at work that actually contribute to unsafe levels of work-related stress. But we give them all sorts of fancy names like psychosocial hazards and, you know, psychological harm prevention, and it just does people's head in. So with this maturity model, essentially it's transformational. So we're talking about three plus years, but we have to break that down. And in the book, I've broken down the sections in the book and I have this transforming norm will of change model where the first part is really gaining traction. So, you know, what is the case for change? What is the case for change? Why do we need to be building mentally healthy workplaces? What is a mentally healthy workplace? What's the data telling us? And in the book, we talk a lot about the stats around the productivity commission. So, you know, the impact on really on the nation's GDP as a result of poor mental health in the workplace. So we're talking about economics at a macro and a micro level. We're talking about the human factors, you know, just the heart case for change. Those people like me who are people and culture advocates, you know, there's a real ethical element here. Stop breaking people, for God's sake. Just stop breaking people. In the workplace, stop using people like a commodity and um, a chess piece on a chessboard and recognise the value they have in your workplace. 
I'm going off track, but one of the things that's really driving me bonkers at the moment is a bit of this laissez-faire kind of attitude from people when there's resignations, just putting it down to this, this phenomenon that they can't control. Oh, it's just the great resignation. And I just call absolute bullshit on that because, you know, this has not come out of nowhere. This is a result of these really poor workplace practices and behaviours that have been going on for decades. And this has not just happened as a result of COVID. Stuff's been happening before COVID and there's really clear stats, you know, to show that. Anyway, again, I could really go off on a tangent there. Tanya, that's not a tangent because um, that's the truth is that we human beings are so lazy in nature, I wrote about this, is that we will tie whatever we want to the great resignation or whatever thing we can find to blame because what mm. it allows us to do, it's to hide the the inconvenient truth, which is people have been resigning for a long mm. time. It's just that environmental situations and choice situations have changed to the extent where people have started to do what I call the great realisation and go, fucking hell, like I don't have to put up yep. with this anymore. I might actually mean I, I earn less money, but, but I look at it like this. We can look at freedom in a couple of different ways, and one is the, the freedom we get from our financial rewards from work, and and, th- and they are important. But then there's the freedom of making choice to go. I'm not going to do that 85 hour week anymore. Yep. So what what you've hit on there, I think, comes to the essence of mentally healthy workplaces is that don't look away, people, mm-hmm. don't, or don't try and blame it on something. It's so easy to blame the the GR at the moment because there's all this data, and then people can wipe their hands and go, "Well, it wasn't me." Yep. It was COVID that created this. Yep. Bullshit. Yep, yep, yep. And, you know, the numbers of people that are leaving organisations here, I'm sorry, but, yeah, stop blaming COVID. COVID's just made what was already a bad situation worse, but it is not the only factor here. So, yeah. Part one of the book, Gaining Traction, is all about that and looking at those barriers to maturity. So addressing the confusion around the language when we start talking about mentally healthy workplaces, the stigma that still exists here, all of those factors, the fact that this is long-run work. I always laugh here, Mark, because when I did my MBA, my economics professor would always say, we don't care about the long run. In the long run, we're always dead. We're dead. He used to say, it was so funny. I loved him to bits. We are dead in the long run. We only care about the short run. And, you know, in the marketplace, you do, right? So in the share market, that's it. It's about what's happening today because that's everything's reactive. It's about today. But we've got like that in the workplace as well. And, We've got to stop ourselves. We've got to take a deep breath and go, okay, this is going to be long-run work. So watch our expectations. You know, gird ourselves, take that deep breath that we need to face into this, this long-range work, but find those quick wins that will sustain that momentum. Yep. And I, I've done that in the book. I've given you lots of actions you can take that are going to give you some really quick win results that are going to help just give you that momentum and um so you can see that you're actually making progress, even though it might feel microscopically slow. So part one, obviously, is getting the business case, doing all those things you might need to do. The reality is a lot of the people that come to me that want to do this work, they're not necessarily at the top of the tree. So we've got to build that business case to say, okay, well, for your business, this is the advantage of doing this work. Because, yeah, there's going to be an opportunity cost, but, you know, what's the the benefit? What's the big outcomes? Yeah. And part two, I call rolling your sleeves up because this is where we really get into it. You know, we really get into some great stuff where we're shifting attitudes, old-fashioned values and beliefs where we're actually starting to make change. And it's around building psychological safety and proactively addressing psychological harm. 
those psychosocial hazards, we call them. So those things in the design and management of work that we know contribute to unsafe levels of work-related stress, which if unaddressed can lead to a mental injury claim, which can, you know, is, is escalating in burnout. But that's the worst case scenario. There's a whole lot that happens before that. You know, we have so much lost productivity, disengagement in our people before not, not everyone takes things to a a work cover claim, right? No. It's a whole lot of disengagement and business impact before that point. And a lot of people just go, you know, like we've just said, stuff and I'm out of here. You know, if you're not going to listen to me about these factors at work that are really impacting on me, I've tried to raise it. I've been really constructive. I've offered solutions. You're not hearing me. I'm sick of it. I'm out of here because it is an employee's market right now. Yeah. And, and, and so that's two of them. Is there a third one? Yeah, so part three is really just sustainable change. So how do we make yep. these changes stick? Because, and I say in the book, culture is not yogurt. We don't sit and forget. This is constant vigilance. And any time that there's new people coming in, external threats, you know, things shake up, right? So we've got to, this has to be a constant focus for people. It's got to become a business as usual. We're always going to be monitoring culture and these, these factors that are at play. So we talk about workplace change. In the book, it's interesting because it's part of the book as well. So people, when they're implementing these activities, they're doing it in a way that is effective change management. So we know it's going to actually get the results. But then we're talking about workplace change as a psychosocial hazard as well because it's one of the frequent flyers that we're seeing poorly managed change. And you have, you and I have had change conversations. You've you've had you know your Zoom room provocations where we've spoken about change you've interviewed some great change practitioners and change leaders uh, so we know change is often not done well in the workplace and has a big impact i like it the other yeah the other elements in sustainable change are around um, positive and just culture and then safe and effective leadership because leaders are the ones that will be reinforcing this so we've got to give the leaders the skills the knowledge the skills the capabilities to lead safely and effectively in this new world of work with changing expectations of employees. So just on that, that's a massive adaptive challenge, that one, because we're trying to change Huge. beliefs and behaviours, maybe some values as well, the relationships between people. Yep. I'm tipping then that a new policy on creating a mentally healthy <laughs> workplace isn't <sighs> going to make it. So talk to me firstly then about, don't necessarily have to name organisations, but who's starting to do this really well? And what, what sets them apart from those who were still caught in the, let's write a new policy, send it out to everyone, they can read it, and then we'll be right. Yeah. Um, the biggest problem, is, as always, in any change initiative is the resourcing, so budget and resourcing, obviously. Those that are doing this well are those larger organisations that have bodies on deck to do it, yep. obviously. And or those that have recognised, actually, I don't have the people internally, but I've got budget to externally resource it. But you still need internal people, right? This has to have some internal linkages. I've worked with organisations that have seen a really re-engagement in their people purely from expressing the intent to do this work. So yep. their first activity was to set up. Uh, they already had interest from a group of staff who were really keen on this sort of mentally healthy workplace and stuff. That group was just about they were throwing their toys out of the cot. They were about to leave. They were so peeved off. They'd been talking about this stuff, had all these promises and nothing had happened. And so I was engaged to pull together the strategic action plan, which is in sort of the transformational piece of this work, and to do the co-design with this group 
and the re-engagement just from them realising the organisation was serious about this. Even you know, and, and they had the reality that this is a long-run game. They knew that. They knew that this wasn't going to be a revolution and overnight we would see everything working how we wanted it to work. This is such aspirational work, but it's about the intent for me. So even if you're a smaller organisation and you don't have the budget, you don't have the staff, it doesn't cost you a lot of money to start, to show the intent, to get some voices together, to get some thoughts, to get some ideas. The reality is that there are regulatory requirements underpinning, particularly around the psychological harm prevention stuff anyway, and there's changes to Victoria's regulations. But I hate that compliance mindset, you know, I have a program about to roll out, which I call From Confusion to Care. So it's this confusion is bad. I've got no idea. I know I need to do something. I don't know what that is. Tell yeah. me, help me, show me. So we move through that to compliance. So organisations will be complying with regulations, legislation. But then I want to go to care. I don't want to stay there. I want to go to best practice. You know, what's actually going to transform? Because we know compliance is just transactional, right? People tick and flick. Nobody gives a shot. Nobody actually moves. Nobody transforms. We don't change values, attitudes and beliefs through transactional training. Um, I tell the story in my workshops, Mark. In 2016, my house burnt down. It was quite a traumatic event. No doubt. Yes. We were home at the time and I had to evacuate my family. I've got a mother with disabilities who um, lives in a, a unit under our roof line. So the fire actually started there and come through. And a few months after that, I found myself, I was a, an executive in the health service. I found myself sitting there and I found myself really transactionally going tick, tick, tick on my fire warden training, my fire safety training. And I was feeling really annoyed because all of us approach this training for completion, not for learning, because I'm the one that's got to report up the line my stats that I and all of my team underneath me have completed our mandatory training and show our stats, you know, monthly. That's what we get. You're only at 70% for your mandatory training. You know, stick, 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 get it done. And I thought I'd, I caught myself up because I had no idea. I was just going tick, tick, no, that's wrong. Okay, go back. Can't be that scenario. Must be B, they're not A. It's just just working through this training and I caught myself up and thought, holy moly, Tanya, if you can't take this seriously after the fact you've actually had to do this in real life, if you're still not taking this seriously to learn, wow, this is not working. And there's a whole body of evidence around mandatory training and how actually in some cases, particularly as we're talking about sexual harassment, it can actually work the other way. Yeah. So it's not enough just by itself. It needs to happen. You know, it's a way organisations meet legal requirements in many instances, but in itself, it's not enough. It sounds to me like it's still something that's really important that organisations need to have that, let's call mm. it that transactional technical-based training in there. But if you combine that with you talked about before, what I really liked was having intent. Mm. Like you don't have to spend any money to show intent. It sounded to me as simple as, getting a group of people together who are like-spirited, not necessarily like-minded, to sit around and go, let's have a conversation about what does a mentally healthy workplace look like to you? What's it been like when you've been in one? What's it like when you're not in one? And then you have a second meeting and a third one and a fourth one. All of a sudden people go, hey, I think they're taking this seriously now. It's not like Absolutely. this isn't a completion activity that, you know, have five meetings and then get your bonus. It's... <laughs> have five meetings because we're trying to create a, an environment here where we want you to know that it's, you've got permission to talk about what it looks like when it's good, when it's not good. So I, I, mm. I really like that. And thank you for sharing that story because I think we all get caught in that. I'm sure people listening mm. will say that you know, they're the drivers of a lot of change in different things. But when it 
comes down to, I guess, the nitty gritty, they fall back into the old habits of tick, 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 flick, flick, flick. Uh, absolutely. That's what we do for sure. This can't be tick and flick. It can't be transactional. And, you know, and I would even say, look, stuff your policy. You know, that's what is a policy going to do? How many policies do we all have sitting on shelves right now? Nobody enforces it. Nobody even knows they exist. It can't be stick approach. We've got, this is about, you mentioned before, it sounds like, you know, values, beliefs. It is. We're talking about changing hearts and minds. The other thing we see a lot when people start talking about mental health in the workplace is these, this is where I sort of call this, this the trivial activities where we do mindfulness. I am all about mindfulness. In, in fact, I teach that as a strategy in my self-care workshops. Absolutely. It is a strategy for individual well-being. But when I'm talking about mentally healthy workplaces, we're talking about the systemic factors in work. So we just have to be mindful that when we're pulling people together, it's not about those people who want to talk about healthy eating and exercise, all of which are important from an individual mental health perspective, but all of which can absolve the workplace from looking at the workplace factors. Yeah. So we just have to be really careful. And I often suggest to people, I don't want another committee for another committee's sake. Nobody does. We know meetings are another issue altogether. But sometimes it's maybe it's useful to separate the physical well-being from the mentally healthy workplace side because it can get diluted in those activities, you yeah. know. When I was still at, in a workplace, huge workplace, those traffic light things on the food and drinks, you know, they're not going to create a mentally healthy workplace. They're just going to make me go down the street to get my 600 mil diet coat because I can't buy it anymore because it's a red traffic light, you know. So that's not what we're talking about here. You sound like you're a rebel, Tanya. But I get that too because, you know, you listen to those sorts of things. And look, kudos to organisations that are trying to do something. I, I totally get that. Absolutely, yeah. But that idea of this goes back to what I said about the great resignation and the great realization is they're going to, we're going to migrate to the things that are easier, the things that are obvious, the things that yep. get us the quick sugar fix of, hey, we yep. ran a lunch and learn session on work-life balance. We put a fruit bowl. We ran a yeah. yoga class. They're very well-meaning. They are. And I say that they're well-meaning with the right intent, but they're trivial. They're not transformational. So let's talk about intent, breaking intent down into some really simple and practical things that managers and organizations can do to foster a mentally healthy workplace. Yep. So what would be three simple things you would share that oh. they can do from an intent perspective? Like we've talked already about creating a forum where people can come and, and talk. That That's mm. one thing. Yep. What, what else would you say? Oh, look, if you're talking leaders, managers and leaders, probably the absolute Biggest one, I'm going straight to these psychosocial hazards. So I'm in the rolling your sleeves up, looking at psychological harm prevention. You know, we need to be doing proactive stuff. So the biggest issue right now for people is workload has been for a long time. Yep. And it's not all about COVID. That's just making it worse. The intent right now is not just to hear your team saying, I've got too much work, but to listen. And with the right intent, with the intent, to address or alleviate the problem. And that means thinking in new ways, yeah? Yep. Old ways don't open new doors. And we've got to find really innovative solutions right now for these problems that are in this unprecedented world that we're dealing with. I think the biggest burden for leaders is that their teams are all saying their work overloaded, but the leaders are absolutely smashed as well. Yep. And they don't have the answers. So everybody just nods and goes, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Yep, but here's something else to do. We, the intent, number one, start there. Start there and look for ways. And, you know, I guide people on my website under my resources page. I've got a free 
organizational tool that helps them get really clear on their priorities because we've got organizations trying to do things that aren't must-haves and we've got to get really sharp and rationalized projects right now when we've got a third of our workforce off with the flu or COVID or whatever and and just sharing the workload with other team members so one the intent right now can be listen when your people are telling you they're struggling really listen listen to change it not smile and nod and go yep yep me too I know yep it's hard isn't it we've got to shift we've got to change something that in itself if you can do that you know that's getting right down into the micro detail but if leaders can just change the way they're responding and if their leaders can change the way they're responding and if somewhere up the top we can actually go okay when do we say no when do we all go we're at capacity stop before I add something I've got to take something away yeah, yeah, and look again, their leaders to their leaders to someone at the top. Absolutely. Just on that for a minute, how can this be driven though through the engine room of the business? I quite rightly think that we put a bit of pressure on the manager of the manager of the manager of the CEO, whoever it is. But mm. what's the duty or what's the opportunity for the, the humans in the engine room where the work's being done? They, they might be managing a small team, but they're yep. they might have one, two, or multiple layers above them, usually in more transactional type roles, but but the ones that seem to be carrying a lot of the workload. What do they need to do in this intense space? The problem is, this is where it starts to get tricky. In a lot of organisations, it's not safe for them to speak up and say, hang on a minute, we need to look at workload because yep. it's we're all drained. So as I say, there's this waterfall problem going on. Yep. It just keeps getting pushed down because no one, no layer, do people feel safe or actually have we given people permission to actually say, you know what, we just need to stem the flow here a little bit because we're all drowning. Yep. We've forgotten that we can actually have permission to do that. So, I mean, I've convened this whole summit, this virtual summit on workload management, Mark, because it's such a big issue and it's there's individual factors. You know, there are things that we do as individuals that can actually, you know, make this worse. We can actually rods for our own back in that respect there are leadership factors at play so you know fear-based leadership and there are organizational factors and without a doubt there's the external demands right so if you think of a health service right now we can't necessarily just say okay stop no we're at capacity see you later because we know that there's community expectations and legislative yep. requirements etc but to start with we've got to make these workplaces psychologically safe so people can feel safe to speak up and say actually I'm really struggling under my current workload what are our options for addressing this you know just to be able to put it on as a problem and actually all examine it as a problem and look for innovative solutions to these issues so has it been over covid like there was a bit of a shift in this space all of a sudden for those people who did work from home quite a bit all of a sudden everyone started to see each other in a very different environment all right mm. and there was an opportunity there that went now we can see you as a human being. We can see what's going on in your life, works part of your life as well. Have we missed the opportunity to keep leveraging off what the goodwill that was happening then? Because I was getting asked a lot, how can, what can I do now to make my people feel more like they belong and they're included? And it's like, well, just treat them like human beings. Have we missed the opportunity? Because now the argument's back to everyone in the office, everyone work from home, like it's almost like a binary thing again. What, what are your yeah. thoughts around that? I think that may be hitting pause on get back to the office because in the last few days at the time that we're recording this, as you know, things have taken a bit of a nosedive COVID-wise. I think I'm not sure we ever many places got that right in terms of the connectedness when we were all working from home. I think 
you know, there's some data coming through now that's indicating whilst most people did prefer working from home, they certainly were feeling disconnected. Mm. What did we do when we all went virtual? We all just transferred all of our work practices into a virtual environment. We never looked at it to say, okay, there are different ways that we could be doing this. So Lynn Kazaley in her book, Sync Async, so she's talking about these new ways of working. So we know all of the meetings that we had scheduled face-to-face, we all just converted that to Zoom or Teams, right? Nobody actually stopped to think, all right, can we work in a different way? We all just went, we expect everybody to be on at the same time, you know, still having the same meetings. Instead of face-to-face, we're all going to these digital means. We didn't use the opportunity to rethink about whether all those meetings were actually useful anyway, or there were different ways that people could contribute at different times that suited them. What we then saw is, of course, I I think we got a little bit better, Mark, you know, when we had homeschooling, I think people started to appreciate, okay, well, 8.30, 9 o'clock meetings aren't necessarily going to be great for this person now because they have got to be dealing with getting their kids set up for homeschooling, whereas, you know, normally they would have been at school or in before school care and that person's in the office. So I think we got a little bit more understanding about people's individual circumstances and their challenges, but I still think we had the same expectations. Jonah Berger, in his book, The Catalyst, he talks about the need to give people a menu of choices. And so one of the things I suggested to my clients when they were putting out their emails about, okay, we need to still have our our team gatherings, instead of saying, okay, at 10 o'clock on Tuesday or whatever, give people an option as to what they want because they're dealing with different circumstances, whatever their circumstances were, caring for children, caring for elderly people, whatever it may have been. Give them a choice. So the expectation is still that we will connect on a daily basis, but it doesn't have to be the leader, it suits me at 10. I'm going to give you a choice between whether an early or an evening or whatever suits you. So, you know, just giving them a choice to take a bit of pressure off them. So yes and no. Yes, I think it did shift us, but I feel like everyone's just going to flick the switch back, right? Well, the old system in itself, will, as I've said to people for two years now, lurks in the shadows and it waits yes. for its opportunity to pop back in whatever way. And one way it could be is that this is when we're having our meetings because I say when we're having our meetings, like it'll pop back in and it will yep. reclaim what it thinks is its rightful place. I think the opportunity that is in front of us is that we can keep that thing in its shadow for a bit longer or just let mm. it know that it's no longer welcome and then and we'll take some of the good things but we'll also add some some other yeah. bits and pieces um the simplicity of the menu i love that so give people oh, a menu it. so there's a simplicity of the menu so here's my question for you this is sort of the the one before we wrap it up is why do human beings try and look for the complicated and complex answer when there can be very very simple things like like you said before Listen and address, mm. stem the flow mm. and speak up. Like why why are we looking for the next silver bullet and the next wonderful thing that we sit around in a room for hours or on a virtual call for hours coming up with no no new way instead of just going, hey, why don't we just give them a menu and stem the flow? Yeah, I think maybe because this world has got so complex and crazy, we feel like unless it's a complex and crazy you know, we put the word paradigm, my God, yep. I hate that freaking word, into something that it's not meaningful. As a business owner, and you'll be across that, we've got a lot to do and that our head's in a lot of different spaces. And I came across this social media post one day that said, you know, to improve your well-being, it was targeted at business owners, rest more. Yep. And that was it. And I thought, it is that simple. And I talk about this in this book when I talk about ways to foster inclusion safety. 
just reach out and say hello to people, yep. you know, foster their sense of belonging. And I listed some strategies that a, a local government group of leaders came up with in a workshop I ran. And I just put a note, you know, if you think these are all too simple, just because they're simple, don't discard them. Yep. And, and to your point exactly, some of the most effective, powerful things are just so simple. I mean, I have this saying, if nothing changes, nothing changes. Mm. And people might look at that and go, well, pfft, duh. But you just sit and resonate on that for a minute. It's mm. that simple. Yeah, but we'll be looking for the again yeah, the silver the bullet or the, the thing, <laughs> the VUCA, whatever they whatever they want to call it, volatile, uh, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. I think we just continue to create stories. I do use that. You know, I know, I, I I know you use it, but I I have an aversion to it because I'm like, it just scares the shit out of people. You can yeah. use it and then you can explain it, or you can use it and then not say anything after that, and then people go into a tailspin. Oh uh, no, I explain it. So. Where do we find you or where do the listeners find you? Where can they get your book and engage in what you do? Thank you. Look, I am fairly prolific on socials. Um, it's one of the reasons I wrote the book. So I've got a lot to say and I'm, I've, I have a lot of outputs. So LinkedIn is a great one to find me on. I'm on everything. I hate Facebook, but I'm there as well, apparently. So LinkedIn's the preference, really. Uh, the website, tanyaheenivu.com, has an area where people can buy my book. It is also available as a Kindle through Amazon. It is also available for purchase if you want to purchase via Amazon UK or USA. It'll take you a little while to get to you. It'll be in audiobook format around November this year. And there are also look so many free resources on my website. I do genuinely want to change the world of work and workplaces I probably give away way too much, but please go and look at the resources section, have a look at the blogs. There are lots of quick ways. And if the language is confusing you, which it will if you're new to this space, don't let it. Just focus on those simple things, just the simple concept that we're just trying to make workplaces, places that really promote the positive aspects of our mental health and not the negative. So simple, but actually wasn't as simple as it was supposed to come out of my mouth, but you know. <laughs> Oh, that's your story. It sounded pretty simple to me. But anyway, I think hopefully the people will understand what you said. Hey, Tanya, thanks for joining me. It's been a great chat. And um, hopefully we'll get to catch up again one day soon. Yeah. Are you ever back down in these woods? Are you still uh, coming down here? I haven't for a while. I haven't for a Mm. while. But uh, anyway, you know, you never know. We'll have to drum up some more business down there. Get you back down here. Good on you. Thanks again. Thank you. Hey there. I love the simplicity of... Listen and address the issues. So come in with good intent. If you show intent, intent doesn't cost you dollars and mean you need big budgets to do work that is going to help create a mentally healthy workplace. But just have the intention of listening and addressing some issues rather than listening and just letting them be. Allowing people to speak up. And I love this. Uh, these three words that Tanya said is simple as talking about stem the flow. So if the flow of busyness and overwhelm is coming over the wall, over the damn wall at a million miles an hour, stopping in the moment and saying, let's stem the flow. Before we try and do too much, let's just, what are we not going to do? Looking at this as a long game with something else that came up that uh, is really, really important. The story about even how Tanya gets caught up in the transactional tick the box completion stuff when, when her house burnt down back in 2016. Um, She shared that story and she went back into that next three months of 
just ticking boxes rather than looking a bit more deeply into how she could change things that she was doing. The book is amazing. I said I've only flicked through it, but there's some really good ideas. Those the three stages of traction, roll up the sleeves and sustainably change are really worth having a look at, not just from a creating mentally healthy workplaces perspective, but also just in change as well. Tanya's full of energy. I love it how she saw herself as um, the social outcast because she was reaching out to people at year nine and, you know, now a good friend with that person, like a, a good long lifelong friend. So there's something for you to think about as we wrap up today is if there is that person who is just sitting there on their own, one of the things you can do to start to help them and yourself is just to go over, say hello and have a conversation with them. Hey, if you love this one, why not rate it five stars and uh, leave us a little comment on what you loved about it. And if you liked it, share it with your friends, your friends who might be working through this. Maybe they're overwhelmed at the moment or maybe maybe they're doing some great things to create mentally healthy workplaces and they'll just pick up some more great ideas from the, from the work of Tanya Heaney Voot. But until next time, keep it simple, keep it practical and keep it human. Bye for now. Bye.